This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. The other day, a friend of mine found out that she has cancer. And she and I were talking and she said, well, I'll see Maria, my wife's name, a little bit later today. And I thought, oh, I guess they've decided to meet up. And didn't think anything more about it until later, my friend with cancer was talking about a woman in her community who was kind of a grouch, she thought, somebody who was screaming at other people in the community about keep the noise down or get off my lawn or something like that. My friend didn't even really know her name or know much about her other than that. And then she received a text from Maria, thinking it was my Maria, saying, you know, can we meet up? Can we talk? And when my friend responded with, yes, I am so devastated and laid out what she was going through with her cancer, the response was, I'll be over tonight with a meal. And she said she was expecting Maria Moore at the door. And turns out her neighbor's name was Maria. And she had responded to that vulnerability in the text with remarkable kindness. And these two that probably just saw each other as a noisy neighbor and a grouchy neighbor had, she said, uh, an hour or so that was amazing. And I, as she said that, I thought, I wonder how much that could actually go on. Today, I want to talk about what do we do to fix it, or is it too far gone? And in order to talk about that, we have with us Seth Kaplan, who is a, he's an expert, leading expert in the world on this question of fragile states. He's a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, senior advisor for the Institute for Integrated Transitions, and consultant to multilateral organizations such as the World Bank and the United States State Department. And he has a new book out called Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. Seth Kaplan, thanks for being with us today on the show. My great pleasure. You know, when when you're talking about fragile neighborhoods, I think fragility has sometimes a multitude of different meanings in the way people use it now. Oh, he's so fragile, you can't really talk directly to him. Or... 
somebody's fragile in the sense of suffering. What do you mean when you say fragility? When I say fragility, whether it's at a neighborhood level or larger community level or the level of a state, the most important element is the nature of our relationships. I have worked in about 35 countries and I repeatedly see that the health of relationships are key. They literally determine the health of the state, the future of the state. And so when I go to any place, whether it's a neighborhood or a country, the thing that I'm most interested in finding out is how well are people treating each other on many levels. And so that was a, an absolutely beautiful story. It reminds me of lots of stories I see in my neighborhood. And I feel that so few Americans live in places where people care enough about each other to do what that neighbor did in your story. And so when I say fragile neighborhoods, first and foremost mean places in which relationships are weak, institutions have thinned out or disappeared, and people just live next to each other, and they have very little that brings them together. I was really shaken one time by something, I don't remember who this was, who said, most of us know the layouts of sitcom family houses better than we do what our own neighbors' houses look like. And as soon as that person said that, I thought, you know, that's exactly right. I could tell you exactly where every room on the Cosby Show reruns from 40 years ago would be. But I don't know my neighbors' houses very well from the inside. And I did all the people around me when I was growing up. Is is that a new thing in American life or or is this just the way it's always been and a lot of us are starting to notice it? Well, first, let me talk about my neighborhood and then I'll answer your question. If I walk around my neighborhood, I may not be friends with loads of people. I have a few good friends, but not a lot. But I have relationships with hundreds of people and I can mostly tell you what the parents do, where the kids go to school. And in answer to your question, I'm not very good at it, but my wife could probably tell you not only what the makeup of their houses look like, but actually what they did wrong in their kitchen renovations. <laughs> if you can imagine that. I don't pay too much attention, but every time we walk into a house, look what they did and look and think about what we could do to our kitchen. So I hear that over and over again. And, and that's because... We have, we have close relationships across houses, across families, and I think that was the norm. In fact, if you look at human history, until about two generations ago, people were very place-based. Most of the institutions and activities where they worked, working might have been a little further away, but where they prayed, where they shopped, where they met people— Everything was pretty close. So if you went, let's say, in the 1950s or even into the 60s and you went onto a street, kids played on the street, parents hang out on their porch, people mm. knew each other. And again, it doesn't mean that they were friends, but they had relationships. They had expectations that each other would be there to support them. And if there was some need, and I could talk about lots of personal stories about we had a crisis or we had a need and a neighbor stepped in, I think this was the norm mostly everywhere until recently. And now if you ask me why Americans feel vulnerable, why they feel at risk, why they feel alienated, why they feel angry, I think the single most important reason is they feel alone. They don't feel like they belong to anything. They don't feel like they have a stake in any place, and most especially their neighborhood. And they don't have people that they can feel that they're in life together with, and they're there helping each other. I think that's the biggest change in people's lives that nobody talks about. I want to talk about the social and spiritual implications of this a little bit later on, but I want to stay here for a minute on uh, on neighborhoods themselves, because I, I can imagine there's somebody listening who would say, that's exactly right. I'm lonely. I'm disconnected. But what do I do? Because if everybody is in that situation in a community, it, where do you even start? I mean, you, you can't go door to door saying, hey, why don't we be friendly with each other? So what does one person do to start changing that? Well, in the scholarly world, we would call it like a collective action failure, that everybody wants to do something, but because no one's doing it, we are collectively worse off and there's nothing that we 
there's like no obvious way for us to collectively change. So I, I would say there's a few things that any individual can do. First, you can look out your door, like I look out my front door right here, and you could look left and right, up and down, and you can imagine there's probably eight or 10 houses right there. And the first thing you could simply do is you could knock on a few doors. You could look for people when they're outdoors. If you have kids, you could look for when other kids are outdoors. And so you yourself could try, and I will guess that if you tried eight or 10 houses, you might not always succeed, but I bet you'll find one or two houses where they will be open to something. And that is a starting point. On a bigger scale, I would say is, is could you look in your neighborhood? Is there an institution? Is there an organization? Is there an activity? It could be a church. It could be a volunteer activity. There could be some meeting place, some neighborhood hub. Is there a place to meet for coffee, food? Could you go to these places and somehow volunteer, join, find other people? That would be a second thing someone could do. And I would just say one more. In general, it's best not to tackle loneliness alone. Can you find two, three, four other people in your broader area, it may not be in your immediate neighborhood, who cares about these issues? And can you cooperate to do something? Because if you can get us a few people who say, we care, we want to activate that good nature or that desire to be with other people and among our neighbors, and a few of you do something together, it can have a cascading effect. It won't, none of this is easy. Mm -hmm. All of it is possible. I had a friend that was reading the Bible for the first time and was, for whatever reason, started with the book of Revelation and said, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm reading through this. It's so apocalyptic and scary. I'm, I'm expecting Pennywise the clown to show up. And I said, well, it gets better. It, 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 it really does. <laughs> but... I can think of something a lot more terrifying and apocalyptic than Pennywise the Clown, and that is the Nextdoor app, which is <laughs> people in any given neighborhood who get on this app and, and talk about things related to the neighborhood. My wife and I will laugh that we can go on that app. And it will start with someone saying, we've lost our dog. Has anyone seen him? And it very quickly devolves into people calling each other pedophiles or communists or fascists or something like that. I, and these are people who all live in, around the same place and in the same zip code. Is social media a driver of this kind of resentment and disconnection or is it just a symptom of it? Well, I, I think it's both, but I do think on the bigger picture, if we think that these changes have been occurring for two generations, I would say technology on the whole is driving our disconnection. Uh, we are driving further away. We're shopping differently. Many things that were local are now nationalized. I look at social media as certainly exasperating these trends, but I also see it as part of roughly 50, 60 year trend in which technology has changed so many aspects of our life. And then social media is like, is like zooming it up, exasperating the problems. But I think it's important to see that this has been going on for a period of time and social media is making everything worse. So yes, it is part of a larger trend and it is, yes, it is making things worse than anything else out there. I think, I think these are both, both correct. When you talk about institutions in in the book and the necessity of institutions, and you gave some examples of churches, synagogues, Knights of Columbus, Boy Scouts, uh, those sorts of, of mediating institutions, most of those, as you note in the book, are in crisis, sometimes even uh, crises of credibility. And a lot of people are asking, can the institutions really help us at this point or do we need new ones? I think both answers could be correct. Something like marriage and family, we're never going to replace that. That is the mm -hmm. building block of a healthy society. It could be things like Knights of Columbus or veterans associations. Those might need to be reinvented. We might need something else. I don't think we need new houses of worship, but houses of worship might need to 
rethink what their roles are. I mean, I think one of the reasons why all of these organizations are in crisis, I mean, there are broader trends that affect and make it harder for local institutions to thrive. But if we think about the single biggest reason why we, we may not join for this purpose, but the single biggest reason we stay and we have a sense of that we belong to this, we want to invest in it, is that it's the nature of the relationship. So if a church or a local association or something is doing a really great job in building good relationships, and for me, building community, people find there's value, they feel that they're, they belong, they want to contribute, they want to invest. If these local institutions have different purposes and they're not building relationships and they're not building community and not building fraternity, I think therefore they have a hard time competing against our other, other things that are drawing our attention today. So I, I do believe it's both, some need to be strengthened and we might need some innovation, some might need to be replaced, but in general, this the key thing is we need strong relationships and the institutions that nurture community are the ones that are going to do very well in the years to come. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. I had a researcher yesterday or the day before, public health researcher was talking to me about the relationship between public health officials and churches during COVID. And she was talking about several misfires there and asked what, what could be done better. And I said, I don't think it's so much about what kind of messaging you have as it is, do these people know each other beforehand when, when you're not in the middle of a, of a crisis, how can, how can one do that, though, when you have these institutions that seem to be very different? I mean, take take uh, public health, mostly scientific database sorts of folks and churches, people who are who are rooted in a specific uh, a specific religious uh, belief. How do those worlds connect? Well, I, again, I think. If you're thinking of health or you're thinking of many other aspects of life, there's plenty of data that says place matters, relationships matter, networks matter. To the extent that churches and other houses of worship are the best incubators of relationships. I I think there's plenty of data. You read the great book, American Grace by Bob Putnam Mm -hmm. and talks about how how pro-social houses of worship are and how those people literally act differently than other people. So if I'm a health official and I'm looking at the data and I'm seeing the importance of relationships and there's loads of data that relationships matter at the individual as long as the commu- as, lo- as much as the community and then at the state level, I think I I would be I would be certainly focused on thinking how do we encourage all these institutions to take a much stronger pro-relationship, pro-social emphasis in their work. I mean, I give the example in my book of, or from my research, this organization, Communio. Communio is an organization that tries to strengthen marriage, and it works with churches. And I think what it does is the same thing that a health organization could do. It's basically saying that if we want to have better social outcomes, we need to find ways to leverage both great technology and they do a lot in terms of leveraging advanced marketing techniques and data 
and internet and everything events, marketing, communications, and they work with churches. So if I'm a health official, I think some marriage, there's a huge opportunity to marriage the traditional and the modern to yield better social outcomes that I feel generally are ignored because people who are in these professions, they don't think so highly or they're not so attuned to what goes on in faith-based communities. We need to think upstream relationships matter and churches are very key to have strong relationships, strong community. If we're looking at this issue of cities, particularly, it, it, it seems like there are a lot of people moving out. And I wonder if the data actually back that up. Are people leaving the, the cities and, and moving to other places? And if so, why? Well, I, I think you're looking at a trend that particularly during COVID, COVID had many negative outcomes, but it had one positive. It made people more aware of their need for relationships and their desire to be in a place where they had strong relationships. So I know several people who moved from Washington to Cleveland, moved back to Southern Minnesota, moved to Iowa, moved to Kansas. I know someone who moved to Idaho, moved back. And so I think I don't think I think it's a little early for us to be sure about the data, but I I can tell from personal relationships that that's certainly something that people are considering in a way that they did not 10 or 15 years ago. One reason is they can keep their job or they mm-hmm. can uh, they can they can access entertainment or things that they care about and still live in Idaho or Kansas or Minnesota. And so I think the opportunities are greater and the desire for relationships is, is greater than before. But in terms of is that is that going to sustain itself? Is that going to grow to a large movement? I think we need to wait another five years before we could be clear about that. It's only been a couple of years since I've seen that happening. But it, it, it certainly does seem as though cities are in crisis right now. I think cities are in crisis, yes. Some cities are definitely in crisis. I, th- I think it's not true all cities. I mean, you yeah. see a movement from blue to red states. You uh-huh. see a movement from cities that are not delivering on what people want, whether it's security or other things. But I think, you know, the thing about America, especially if you come from outside the country, and I have a bit of foreign eyes coming from all over the world, and this is such a huge country. Every place is so diverse. It's really hard to say one thing and it be true for everywhere. But I think there are certainly some cities that are in crisis. You're correct about that. When you think about marriage and family, you talk quite a bit about marriage and family in this book. And uh, there was a symposium in the New York Times, I believe, uh, this weekend with a, a group of uh, different people talking about marriage. And, and one of the realities that you mention in the book is that often it becomes very difficult to talk about marriage for many reasons. I mean, one of them you mentioned, people who are more on the left tend to hear this as traditional family values, something that belongs to conservatives and they don't want to talk about it. But also I found even on the right, there are a lot of people who don't want to talk a lot about marriage because they look around and they see people in their own, I mean, I I can think of pastors who anytime they talk about marriage, They have in their mind, well, I have this single mother over here. Does it sound like I'm saying that, you know, what what she's doing just isn't going to work? And so you have this kind of self-censorship and and check there. But what you talk about in the book, the data is pretty clear about why marriage is important. I mean, there's so much data about why marriage matters, not only for the well-being of the parents, but especially a well-being of children and especially of boys, boys and Mm. men. There's certainly a lot. This has been more in the news in the last two years. But there's there's so much data that says, I mean, women, they have they tend to internalize hardship. And so it affects them in one way. Boys tend to externalize. So the boys will act out in school or misbehave. I mean, I have a son and I certainly see it every time he's not happy. He's throwing something Mm -hmm. across the kitchen Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. You're trying to get out of the way. He's only five years old. I hate to think what he's going to be doing when he's a teenager, but we'll we'll (laughs) wait for that day. But I would just say that 
there's certainly loads of data, mm -hmm. and we are big believers that the intimacy of our relationships, again, these are not always friends. These are people, my neighbor, other neighbors, my kids' classmates and their families. These are people, we are all together helping each other. We feel like we live in a common boat, so to speak, where we're sort of all going in the same direction. And we're just, we just have this norm that we're here to be there for each other. And it, it just, I walk down the streets in my neighborhood and I feel joyful. I don't know how you feel, Russell, if you walked down the streets in your neighborhood, but I feel a sense of joy because I know who's behind the doors. Mm -hmm. I know some of, the, some of the good things and bad things they're experiencing. I know their kids. I walk around and I always see somebody I know. And it's, it's a reality check. It's a sense of support. I feel like there's a security blanket around me. And I feel that if I fall, and we all gonna fall in life, come on. Life is about mm -hmm. failure, repeated failure, repeated struggles. I mean, how many things have I not succeeded at my life? And how many things do I not do right every day if you really think about it? I, I got too angry with my kids, uh, whatever. It's, there's always something I didn't do right. When you live in a security blanket and you have all these other people in there with you, you're just, your whole sense of the possibilities, your whole sense of who you are, everything changes. And that's, that's, why I, that's why I focus on neighborhoods, because neighborhoods matter so much for each and every one of us. We just don't think about it. We need to be much more intentional about what we do about it. And I would say that's true for individuals. It's true for religious leaders. I hope religious leaders will take this to heart as well. Let's talk about boys for a minute. You were talking about the teenage years. And one of the things that I'm noticing is that when I'm talking to people about their kids right now, the big crisis point with boys particularly seems to not be when they're four and five and not when they're in high school. It's that failure to launch afterward. And as we were talking with a, a bunch of people, very highly accomplished, successful families, and all of them talking about sons who are not just still there in the house, but don't have don't have any real trajectory out into the world and are living in a world of gaming and substances often. Why is that the case? Why, why is that turning out to be so often the story for young men, and what can these neighborhoods that are starting to get back to health do about it? Well, I think that we, we should ask ourselves, how have our boys and our children been socialized over the years to getting to where they are at this point? I think you're talking about people who are probably 23, 24, mm -hmm. 25, could be a little older. I mean, could be younger as well about going to college. And I, the key thing is, Think about how we are socializing our next generation. If they're spending their time with technology and not with people, and we're, we're protecting them, and Jonathan Haidt will talk about some of this, mm -hmm. I, will, I will go further and talk about the importance of place-based community and the place-based institutions. The more the boys are in these institutions with other people, I like to talk about being embedded and embodied. If you're embedded in institutions and you're having embodied relationships, and that is happening when you're 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, you're, you're experiencing life as people should be experiencing life, as, pe as life has always been experienced. You're with others, you're taking risks, you're in relationships, you're learning. If instead you're on your phone or mm -hmm. on a computer and you're gaming or you're meeting people digitally, and you're not having that type of relationship with institutions and activities, I mean, clearly when you get to 23, you're probably gonna feel a little bit anxious, maybe even mm -hmm. very anxious about doing things. You're not, gonna have, you're not gonna have grown up having a lot of experience taking risks with people. That's why you hear this data that nobody wants to date and go around with uh, mm -hmm. people of the other sex. I mean, I remember my childhood, and those days it was the opposite. I right. mean, it was, if anything, we were a bit out of control. Yeah. And today we're, we're the opposite, we're, we're just afraid. And so it, it's, it's not only free play, which is what he talks about, I would go further. You need to live in a place where you trust your neighbors. 
You need to live in a place with an abundance of institutions. You need to live in a place in which those kids, boys in particular, but girls as well, you mentioned Instagram, the girls are very affected by Instagram. The boys are not able to launch because they're just removed into their digital play. The more people are out there, the kids are out there and they're with each other and they're playing with each other and they're doing things with each other and they're, they might be volunteering, it might be some work, it might be doing things in some institution. And, and that is occurring day in, day out, or at least weekly, a few times a week, and it's happening all the way up. And then you talk about that pathway to a job, to marriage. You've already learned this habit about being attached to other people, being attached to institutions, being attached to responsibility, and you're ready to take it on because you've incrementally had more and more and more. That's how people grow up. If instead that we've protected them or by default, just let them go on their technology and there are no local institutions, which is the case in many places, and we don't trust our neighbors, so we're not going to let them out of the house and all these things. I mean, it could be on one day. It makes sense. But imagine every day for years, this whole environment, some of it's overprotection. Some of it is the technology. Some of it is the, lot, the, the, the thinning of relationships and the thinning of the institutions. The end result is it should be natural that these kids are not prepared to be adults and act like adults. If anything, they're, they're being prepared to hide from everything because we've, we've basically let them spend 10 years from, let's say, from 12 to 22, whatever the years are, where they basically have been hiding from social interaction. So what would you expect? If, if our whole society is being deinstitutionalized, we're not gonna get to 22 and 23 and ask people to attach to institutions, marriage, mm. church, a job, because they have no experience. So that's where the loss of community for me has such huge cascading effects that we can't even begin to map out unless you really think it through very clearly. It strikes me that for a generation, my fellow evangelical Christians were worried about peer pressure and peer pressure upon their children, when in reality, what we should have been worried about is a lack of peers altogether. Yes, I totally. I mean, peer pressure can be good and can be bad. But mm. in, in the right environment, peer pressure, I mean, your kids, there's plenty of studies that say your kids are not going to grow up to imitate you. They're going to grow up to imitate their peers. When it comes to marriage, uh, particularly and, and family building, what can churches do to make that better? I mean, I think there are a lot of people inside the church and outside the church who are saying, I don't know what to do in terms of keeping my marriage together. What are some things you've seen that can, can work? Well, first, I think churches should be much more relationship and community oriented. Again, this, you might think of this as a collective action problem. Too many people think of church, and I would say it's true of some synagogues. They think of it as a, as a two-hour sermon or whatever it might be, two hours, three hours Sunday morning with the sermon and some praying, and then they are a consumer, and they're taking selectively, and they, so they end up with some functional networks and they end up with a few things that they want. They're not thinking of church as a community. So if I'm thinking about improving marriages or improving outcomes of kids, I would want to belong to a church that has a much larger commitment to life and much higher expectations of me so that I join the community. And I mean, I almost think churches should be countercultural. I mean, being Jewish, Jewish, we are always a minority, at least in the diaspora, and we've been a long history without a state. And so we, we are very used to being countercultural. Mm -hmm. I think too many churches have, because they're so used to the culture being the church, to some extent they followed the culture. And I think they would do more if they thought of themselves as countercultural and building models of community in which they embedded people families in particular, marriages in particular, in the community, such that they, there was like an envelope or there was a container in which it was everybody there to support each other. I mean, marriage and family is really hard in this day and age. There's a lot of pressures and forces working against it to the extent that you live in a place and a part of a community where everyone feels they're there to help each other. Let me just, 
I'll throw out two examples. I can remember a day. My uh, my oldest was about seven years old, and her, her her I had a she had a brother about a year and a half, and she took him from the car in front of my house and proceeded to drop him, and he, his chin landed on the cement, and I could still feel squeamish thinking about my son, a year and a half old, bleeding chin, and my wife didn't panic. My wife is great in an emergency. She picked him up and ran down the street without even telling me where she was going. And I had no idea where she was going, didn't answer this, wasn't answering her phone. Comes back 40 minutes later, he's all bandaged up and we have a plan to take care of him. Where did she go? She went to the nearest nurse. And so in my neighborhood, I know six, eight, 10 nurses. Another example, my wife's mother got sick some weeks ago, maybe a month ago. She had to take off, I need help with carpool. We didn't plan on her on leaving so quickly. Two neighbors in the evening, two neighbors in the morning, four neighbors helping me, standing mm -hmm. in, carpool problem solved. So just think as a parent, as a person in a relationship, how many challenges you have every day. And if you're in this security blanket of relationships, how many little problems or how many challenges? It's, it's almost like we're willfully interdependent and we're helping each other. And it makes, so I, I would just say that if, if a church can build a community and build an ecosystem and possibly even partner with schools, religious schools or whatever it might be, to build that support system of strong relationships, that is gonna make any marriage, any parenting challenges that much easier day in and day out. The church that I have seen that I think has done this the best when it comes to, to helping people through marriages, had a, a program where they would pair people who had been married a long time, successfully married a long time, with people who were starting out that maybe were hitting some, some problems to mentor them through it. And it worked. And it struck me as I looked at it, it wasn't just that this younger couple had some wisdom coming into their life. It was also they had the connection with that other couple. And then even beyond that, I think there was something about that that actually strengthened the marriages of the mentors. Yes, as well yes, as, I can as well see as that. the people they were mentoring. And I don't know how this church decided to do this, but they they did it and it it really it really did work. It 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 almost it almost tried to replace what I think is missing in a lot of families, which is grandparenting. Yes. <laughs> having having that 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 older voice to say, hey, don't freak out. There, there actually is a way through this. It seems as though these, you, you talked about public leadership. It seems like many of the initiatives that are geared toward encouraging marriage and stable families, whether from the left or the right, and you mentioned this in your book, haven't worked. And I, I think there are a lot of people who think, well, if you just adjust the tax code to incentivize people to marry, then that will happen. But it, it doesn't seem like anything has has worked from either direction of the political spectrum, does it? I think, first of all, I think we need to stop thinking when we talk about problems of relationships in society, there is a role for policy. But I think there's a much larger role for social initiatives and social entrepreneurship and social institutions to the extent that government encourages or shapes that, that can be helpful, but at best government can play an indirect role. In my neighborhood, I have neighbors that have, I hate to say it, but six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 kids. They're not doing that because they're getting more money from the government. Right. They're doing that for other reasons. And if you live in a community that's very pro-family and very supportive of parents, to the extent that tuition in our private schools are less if you have more kids, mm. it's simply, it's simply you, you, they check your assets and your income and they adjust what you can pay based upon what you can pay. And mm. so there's all these mechanisms built into the community to support you. So again, policy can do very little. So I, I would say, what we ought to be encouraging is encouraging much more social innovation, social innov initiatives, and looking for what works and trying to replicate it.
What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I really liked the language that you used in the book, that it's not top-down, it's not bottom-up, it's sideways. And particularly about failing, that you do things, and sometimes I think people get discouraged when what they do doesn't work. But I think you would agree with me on this, that the not working is actually part of the part of the working. <laughs> you, you, yes. you start to discover what works and what doesn't and why. Well, for, I, I would ask any of our listeners or watchers, if you're a parent and you watch your kids, how are your kids growing up? They're making loads of mistakes, whether it's mm-hmm. the first I have. Uh, my youngest is about one years old, started walking in the last month and mm-hmm. And she only gets better by falling down. I hate to say it. I mean, it makes mm-hmm. me cry or makes me makes mm-hmm. me just it's sad watching her struggle. But if she doesn't walk a lot and then I have my other kids, I mean, it's like you're constantly watching them grow up. And if they're not making mistakes, they're not growing up. So I would say we as a society want to reward failure. If if I want to help a social entrepreneur, I want, to fi- I want to find social entrepreneurs or social initiatives, whatever they might be that might help our society. We certainly want to give them the space and we want to give them the support. Of course, the people have to have the right mindset. Just like a child needs the mindset, I'm going to learn from my mistakes. And adults, we need the mindset. People who run organizations, people run government, if you're not willing to take chances and make mistakes, I have to say you're voting against progress. You're voting against learning. You're voting against addressing some of our biggest challenges. I thought one of the most beautiful parts of your book is the section where you talked about Shabbat and the practice of Sabbath for your family, your community. And I I wonder if you could tell us what that looks like on a weekly basis. And what could Christians learn from that? Where, of course, we don't have the we don't have the same sort of cultural support for some of those things, but what could we learn? Well, first, Russell, I want to invite you to come to my community on a Saturday. could Mm -hmm. be a Friday night, but a Saturday is the best time. And to join me in walking around. I have a pastor friend. Actually, I think now he, he became a Catholic since I've known him. He wasn't a Catholic before, but from Shreveport, very nice guy, great guy, so very enthusiastic. And he came and he wanted to check it out. And of course, when I took him to synagogue, he, I literally brought him to my synagogue to pray with us Saturday morning. And then in the type of kiddish, the type of like eating and drinking we have right afterwards, I had to be asked at least 10 times, is this your father? Of course, he wasn't my father, but he was about the right age difference. So I had this great experience. I mean, I love this guy, but he's not my father. And anyway, so so imagine he came. And then, first of all, besides the fact that we're in synagogue three times, I mean, some people go every day three times. Actually, it's two times because you do two of the prayers back to back. But imagine we're in synagogue those times. And then we're, we have we have time afterwards on Saturday morning that we share together over strength. 
drinking wine and then sometimes harder liquor, but basically a lot of food. People hang out for maybe an hour and we're not too rushed. And then often you're going to each other's homes for a meal, Friday night, Saturday lunch. Sometimes there's a third meal. And and then imagine you're walking the streets. And the amazing thing when you walk the streets, this pastor, when we walked the streets, the thing is he couldn't believe it. It reminded him of growing up in the 1950s because everybody was on foot. Now, mm. I live in an area that's that's not huge, but it's it's the largest religious neighborhood in greater Washington. It has six synagogues. Again, it's not a huge neighborhood, but it's dense enough of people that I could walk around and see hundreds, and I'm not mm. exaggerating, hundreds of people. The kids are going, the kids are wandering the streets. The adults are walking maybe to a place to learn. They're walking to the synagogue. They're walking to someone's home. And so all of this stuff is going on. And it's going on because, one, our faith constrains where we can go and what we can do on this day for about mm-hmm. 25 hours, because we start sunset on Friday night to sunset on Saturday with a little bit of extra time there, just to be careful. So about 25 hours, we're constrained. And that cons- being constrained means we all live physically near each other. And then there's all these things going on. And these things are not designed per se, to build relationships, but they're just they're just joyful things that we do, and they bring people together over and over again. The best thing for me is watching the kids. You go to a playground on this day, and if you go at the right time, I can go to a playground about half a block up, and I could find 100, 150 kids, and they're just going wild all over the playground. There's a lot of parents hovering around, there's a couple of synagogues nearby, but it's fenced in, so it's pretty safe. And you've got kids from maybe three or four up to about 10 all over that place. I just want to go there and watch because it gives you such a feeling. But again, again, if you walk the streets and you would see teenagers wandering these streets, we talked about, about, about boys in particular not being able to get started with their lives. Well, if you are spending one day a week, and it's a little more because if you add the holidays, it's roughly one out of every five days in the whole calendar, you're spending your time grounded with your friends in relationships Mm -hmm. and no technology, that affects what you do the rest of the week, that affects your expectations, and it gives you skills that you're not getting in the secular world today. So if I'm thinking my Christian friends, I so much wish that they would, they would make the Sabbath much more important, that they would they would demand more of their members on what they could or could not do on the Sabbath or should or should not do on the Sabbath. I would be asking them to have more activities with each other. I would be, I, I think it's hard for many, but if they could make their churches and their community more place-based, I think it would do so much for what it means to build a community and have relationships. If they were, if they were, bringing people into the church multiple times, if they're encouraging people to have meals with each other, and so on and so forth. The more that we make the day the center of our lives, and the more we make the day a day of celebration with each other, the happier we will be, the stronger our communities will be, and the rest of our lives will be so much different. It makes me think of what Jesus said. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. I think sometimes we as Christians emphasize that first part, but not the second part. There, there really is a, a need for getting out of the hubbub of everything else and to connect with one another and with God as human beings rather than as whoever we are professionally, much less digitally. So, so true. If I may just say, we say that Jews kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath kept the Jews. Mm. And what we mean by that is if we didn't have the Sabbath, we wouldn't have survived thousands of years as a minority. And I would just say the feeling you have on a Sabbath, I sleep better. Mm. I, I mean, your whole existence is different. It's like you're in a different dimension, to be honest. And so I, I hope you'll take me up on my offer and you will come visit sometime and I'll take you to a different dimension and we will see what it's like at some point, but it's an well, open offer. I may take you up on that because as we're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking every year over Christmas holidays, I get more done in terms of 
thinking and and recharging for the year ahead than any vacation. And I told my wife I realized why. And it's it's because it's not that I have time off. It's that everybody has time off. So I'm not sort of yes. constantly worried about who's going to call me, what's going to happen. <laughs> we're, we're all yes, doing that. Totally. The book is called Fragile Neighborhoods by Seth Kaplan. I really think that you can find some interesting material for your church, for your family, for your community, especially for those of you who are saying, I'm tired of all this loneliness and disconnection and resentment and hatred, but I don't know where to go next. It will help you with that. Fragile Neighborhoods, Seth Kaplan, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Russell. My pleasure. If you enjoy The Russell Moore Show, take a second to share this episode with a friend or leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host is Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.